Hello, uh, on all. This is Fearless in Devotion, the Wrexham AFC podcast, sponsored by who, Andy? By who? Uh, the Fat Boar. Yes. Can you tell the us anything about them? Fat Boar Bar them? and Restaurant. What can you tell me about them? Uh, they had a great party for all the players. Uh, everyone had a great time. Bootlegger was naked. Uh, I'm not sure if he was naked. He probably wasn't completely naked. Um, but he certainly was showing off a lot of man flesh, and uh, everyone seemed to enjoy it. Yeah, and we, while we can't uh, guarantee that you'll have a naked bootlegger and topless bentoza uh, at the Fat Ball, we would highly recommend that you go. Uh, but thank you for joining Find us. Out. You might. You might exactly. Uh, thank you for joining us, anyway, friends. Uh, we've got a really good guest lined up for you today. Uh, he's joining in around fifteen minutes. But before that, even though the season is over, there's plenty to discuss, namely the open top bus parades to celebrate winning the National League title. Uh, Tim, it was incredible, wasn't it? Yeah, it was It was ridiculous. I think it took everybody by surprise how many people were there. I mean, the estimates are all over the place, easily 20,000. And then the wild guesses are anywhere, anywhere between 20 and 40,000. But it was incredible. It's what we've been waiting for for a long time. And yeah, the, the scenes were just ridiculous. Every street, every corner, every turn, just a sea of red, red smoke, people on rooftops, some people hanging out windows of said restaurants. Um, and yeah, just it was just a brilliant, brilliant occasion, just a wonderful spectacle. And here's hopefully the first of many to come. Yeah, Tim, you were up high in the fat ball, weren't you, in your Lee Harvey Oswald position? Liam, you were down on the street where tell us where you were what was it like uh, well me being brave i was right in the thick of it up where all the hardcore fans were uh, by the bmq roundabout uh mostly positioned there because i had my son with me and it just seemed like an easy point to be able to get away from if anything if there was any need but I, at the start of the um afternoon I, I had my usual anxiety syndrome that i get when I have a party, which is, is any, is anyone going to turn up whatsoever? I was, I drove to Sainsbury's to pretend that I had something to get and I could see a few people milling around. I was like, oh, okay. So there's a few people here. Then by the time I got back just before the parade, it was absolutely rammed. There's people lined all the way down, um, towards the Plas Cork, past the tennis club. Mold Road was obviously, um, jammed and our vantage point turned out to be quite good because the, as the players, came along ben foster looked down gave us a thumbs up had the boy with me uh, i haven't taken to him a raxham game yet but just wanted to share that moment with him ship uh, waving flags and stuff like that so yeah it was really good got a good sight of um got a good sight of rob mack as well although ryan was on the other side but you know i've always been a rob mack man me have you well uh andy before we talk about a certain trip that the players of uh are, we're currently enjoying right now i think still um the media, you know, you're a you're a journo as well. The media interest in it at the moment is remarkable. When you when you think about live streamed on BBC News, every pay, every national is all over this, aren't they? Yeah, the Mirror did uh, did a, uh, an edition for for North Wales when when they won it. Um, the interest, yeah. I mean, I was on BBC for about forty bloody minutes. Like they phoned me up and said, "Oh, would you would you come on? Would you come on and just?" I thought, well, a couple of minutes, say it's great. Trot out some of my old anecdotes. 40 minutes and they're asking me to commentate on a parade I couldn't see because I don't know how it works because you you get like a it's on zoom you get like a blank screen it's like a BBC test card and you get a little bit where you're you're in it and they're there well what do you think of these scenes I'm there I've no idea I can't bloody see it <laughs> um but I did manage to sort of 
Um, I was dry by the end of it. God, I'd gone through my whole repertoire. But it's it's just interesting that the BBC spent two to three hours covering every coffin fart of the uh, the parade. And, you know, the same ones die. They were all over it. The same in, in America. Um, I mean, it's great. And, you know, that is echoed in what's happening in Vegas now, which I know you want to come to, mate. Yeah, the players, I mean, Tim, you've been on Player Watch, haven't you? This seems like they're having a, a decent time, doesn't it? I have not been on Player Watch. I kind of stayed away from it for as long as I possibly could. Then I started giving the likes of Mark Howard a bit of kudos. Um, it's a bit mad. It's a, it's a bit of a um, it's a bit of an educational kind of session for for people of a certain age as well. Because I'm like, I recognise that DJ's name, but I'm not sure I've heard him. You know, Paulie from Geordie Shaw. I don't know this stuff. I mean, He's I'm sure Geordie Shaw. I'm showing my age now, but you know, yeah, it's it's amazing for the players and it's well deserved. Um, and yeah, they, they seem to be enjoying themselves and, and having a, a wild time and, and networking and just I think some of the I think some of the, the spectacles out there kind of caught me off guard. I knew it was going to be quite a big thing, but it's very very different to you know how the players were received in a, in a pre-season tour in Portugal and, you know, on the Algarve not so long ago. It's just chalk and cheese coming to the MGM Grand and having Wrexham in neon lights by, uh, you know, ring ring girls. It's just madness. Uh, and I would have loved to have seen Gilpin go out there as the, as the, as the sort of FID correspondent because I would have taken some bets on whether he would have made it out alive or not. Im and Oli Palmer would have been mud wrestling somewhere, guaranteed on the strip. When I went to uh, Vegas, I didn't see a single minute of daytime. I basically stayed up all night, slept during the day and came out again at night like a bat. Um, oh. And it happened for three, three nights in a row. Um, a couple of years ago, they wouldn't have had that reception at, uh, what's it called? Um, Liquid and Envy. <laughs> Never mind. What was it? Hakkasan or, or yeah. you know those those massive clubs? It's absolutely. I wonder if they're. I when you when you saw them sort of walk out to all that sort of rigmarole, I wonder if they were a little bit embarrassed by it because it's not something that the likes of Jordan Tonicliffe is really really used to, is he? Good blowout though, isn't it? And I mean, I mean, what what do you think about? You know, I'm getting the sense that well i think we all are aren't we to a different degree that it's starting to get on certain people's nerves right now of other football football clubs which is actually great and i mean i think some clubs in particular like for example your newports and others are uh really starting to get hacked off with it uh tim have you have you sensed that on on social media and you know you you, you do have a, have a look at the old message board sometimes and you i had a kind of cursory look at newports the other day and god they hate us yeah i mean the, the, those teams that have that have passed us by and then not developed or pushed on any further will be annoyed the fact that you know, we're back in the same division anyway so the fact that we now come with a a, a circus and that's what keep people keep saying it it is a media circus um I, yeah I, su I suppose I, I can completely understand it because I've even felt like that a little bit if I'm honest because it it doesn't it doesn't I, it's hard to describe it it's a weird situation because let's let's be honest all of this happened in a relatively short space of time you know blink two years has disappeared you know, one minute we're going nowhere, nowhere. Now we're flying and expected to go up again. We've got most of our players 
living the life of Riley in, in Las Vegas. And it's just mad. And it's a weird thing to get used to. A very, very weird thing. And some of it I find a little bit, uh, not overwhelming, maybe a little bit nauseating, but not in a bad way. I don't mean that maliciously. I just find it a bit like, Jesus, is that really us? But the proof will be at the end of the day, get out early, enjoy it, have your family time, go away. Because before you know it, they'll be back in pre-season for, for the US trip. And then it'll be, people People will be waiting for us to lose X amount of games on that new campaign and go, well, they shouldn't have had that piss up in Las Vegas. Like, like it really matters. You know? I, I, I know what you mean as well, because I think it's, to, I, I don't blame any other football fan of another club of being hacked off because I've held a grudge against Newport for 10 years. I've held a grudge against Fleetwood for 12 years. So like, I, I, who who are we to judge people being annoyed? But there's also the sense of, you know, we can just enjoy it while it happens. Um, I mean, uh, on that note, Andy, as well, the other news we need to discuss this week is the news broadcasting deal for Sky, which broadly seems to be good news for us because uh, I think it's 25 League Two games a season or something, isn't it? Yeah, and you would think we would feature quite heavily Mm. uh, on that. Um, I don't think it kicks off next season, does it? I think... Is it the season after? I see. This, uh... I thought it was next season. Oh, okay. Um, Liam, can you quickly re- research this on the job? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's good news anyway. I mean, I was looking forward to the iFollow. Um, uh, I think we're right in, in saying that the iFollow was still in play for, for the international audience, yeah. which is great because if one thing this Vegas trip has shown, it's how much Rex Messi has blown up in that country because they mm. wouldn't be treating lads to, to VIP um, you know, club appearances if they weren't known in the country. So yeah. they obviously are. It's obviously, you know, just when you think the documentary couldn't get any bigger, it does go on another level. Um, so that and success means that we're a, we're a commodity. And I think, yeah. and while I'm I'm not sort of thinking that for for a second that the EFL have, have thought great we can make hay now. Wrexham are in the league too. I, I think it does enter the the thoughts a little bit because mm. it is it is a very much a, a watched club. And, you know, towards the end, the conference did did actually maximise revenue from us. And you would think that the EFL won't be, won't be slow on the uptake there. Liam, what breaking news do you have for us about the broadcasting deal? Uh, I've, I've, got, uh, I've got nothing on the broadcasting deal. I, I, I do have other things, but I'm sure you can uh, set me up for it nicely. No problem at all. Um, so, well, I mean, it broadly speaking, though, the 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 deal from Sky, it seems to be that they weren't really showing much League Two ever. And I think it's fair to say we'll still be seeing Wrexham on the telly uh, over the next few seasons in the Football League, which is great news as yeah, well. Start, the... start, starts from the season after next. So from Does 20, it? Okay. 20, 24 to 25, right up until 28-29 season, which will take in 248 League Two matches over that time. Okay. So, all right, well, hopefully we'll be in League One by that anyway. But very quickly before our um, special guest comes on, uh, I wasn't going to mention this, but I feel like it's only fair after a remarkable day in the National League playoffs. Um, two incredible games, weren't they, Liam? Uh, I mean, drama is carrying on in Wrexham's absence. I, I'm just... Oh, I, I, I've said it all day, but I cannot express how delighted I am that we're not involved because... Watching it as a neutral is actually pretty fun, as it turns out. I watched the, pretty much all the Notts County game. 
Um, what a game that was. I thought at 2-0 down, they'd gone and done, well, what we usually do. But fair play to them. They stuck it out to the end, grabbed a late winner. And Chesterfield, again, thought they'd they'd done it right at the end and then conceded a goal in the, something like the 98th minute against Bromley. Um, so two teams that are presumably going to be quite tired. I mean, they've got a week off, but it was quite, looked like it was a hot day in both areas. And I'm just glad we're not going to, to Wembley, to be honest, that we did it the right way. But yeah, hugely entertaining to watch as a neutral. Yeah, 120 minutes for both sides. Um, Andy, who, who's going to take it next week, do you think? Uh, County. I think County are going to do it. I think they're the better side. They do a really high line, but I think I think they've got the point. Not many Gresford Athletic right-backs become a zombie on House of the Dead, appear on South Park, launch at least two major games consoles and help Liverpool FC to the Champions League and the title. But then not many guests are this fella. After moving to the outskirts of Wrexham at the age of six, he grew up not only watching his beloved Liverpool, but also Mickey, Joey and Arvin on the cop in the 70s. He went from a PE teacher in Clan to moving to America, working for Reebok, Sega, Microsoft, EA, many more before a three-year stint as Liverpool's CEO. And he played a pivotal role in Ryan and Rob's Wrexham takeover. Welcome to the pod, Peter Moore. How are you? I'm good, Andrew. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm just, just looking at your... Uh, at your wall there, there's a... Superb backdrop. Best backdrop we've had on so far, I think. Well, better than your dartboard. Yeah, better than my dartboards. Yeah, no, I was uh, very fortunate to be at Liverpool for the um, for the right three years, as you pointed out, so... yeah. <laughs> well, no, maybe got... because you were there that they were the right three years. Yeah, um... I know. I'd like to take credit, but... Um, just before we start, we'll go through sort of like your early life and, and sort of your, your role in the takeover and maybe the future. Um, Ryan Reynolds could live in Marford, we've heard. Do you know a good pub there? Uh, I used to know a good pub there. And without detracting the current pub there, it, it's it's not a, a patch from what I understand and what my dad's pub was uh, for the best part of 30 years there. The Red Line in Marford, of course, we're, we're talking about top of the hill. Um, no, no, no disrespect to the Trevor Arms at the bottom of the hill, but it is the uh, and was and always probably will be the the pub that people remember in uh, in Marford, uh, and now occupying the same car park as the co-op, so turning wow. into a big village. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you could go for, go for a pint and then pick up some some milk loaf on the way back. Um, yeah. Um, so let's just sort of go and roll it back a little bit. So uh, your family are from Liverpool, uh, moved over to Wrexham. Uh, am I right, thinking early in your, about six or seven, were you? Yeah, I was, I was actually probably nine or ten and, and moved. Uh, we moved. My dad got the pub. So, yeah, we had a pub, born and bred in Liverpool, got a pub, um, the Dryden Arms, which sits between Scotland Road and, and Great Homer Street, right up on the way up to Anfield. Um, moved to Garston, which is right by Liverpool Airport, uh, and had the Gay Cavalier Pub, Ben's Brewery Pub there. My dad was a manager in those days, and so he always wanted his own pub. 
Burtonwood Breweries offered him in 1964, so I was nine then, the chance to to move to Wrexham, to Marford, uh, and take on a pub that had been sort of languishing there in a sleepy village uh, on the A483 uh, between Chester and Wrexham. And uh, we did, so I, I would have been probably nine or 10. Went to primary school in Rosset, and then very fortunate to uh, pass my 11 plus and go to Grove Park Grammar School for Boys. Uh, and uh, that would have been in, in 1966 when I was 11. Um was there ever a chance that Wrexham could have been your first love football wise? Difficult. And I think in those days, you know, no games on television. So it was more where you went to watch and where you went to watch, you physically went to watch. And so my life very early on in my early teens was, was primarily playing. As you pointed out, I played for many years for Gresford Athletic and uh, made my first team debut when I was 15 in the Welsh National League. Um, and I would go to Liverpool when I could, but I didn't have a car, didn't have money, difficult to do. Um, and, and this manager called John Neal had arrived in Wrexham and started to build a team that um, was well worth watching. So it was always a combination for me of, am I playing Saturday mornings for school, Saturday afternoons in the Welsh National League, Sunday mornings uh, in the Wrexham Sunday League? Uh, and, and if we weren't, and there was a lot of waterlogged pitches in those days where the games were called off on a, on a Saturday morning, and you could go to the race course. Um, I, I, I often had the chance to go to Anfield in midweeks for European Cup games and, and Cup Winners Cup games. But Liverpool was always going to be my first love. My dad took me to Anfield when I was four in 1959. Uh, Liverpool four, late Norian three in November. Pre-Shankly days, Liverpool in the second division. Um, you know, when I arrived in, in, in Wrexham, my nickname was Scouse and, and still to this day, old friends still call me Scouse and I've been gone a long time. Um, I, I, but, but Wrexham, I, and what you, you know, my point a little bit is you had a couple of teams in some instances, three teams, because it was who you could get to watch physically. Um, you know, a big day in, in the, in the football calendar was the FA Cup because that was the final at Wembley it was the only time we got to see, uh, televised football. And so, so no, I think, and, and, but Wrexham always, and still is a very close second and keep a very close eye on them, obviously. On those days that you did get to the um, race course, what was that team like in the seventies, you know, like some Mickey, Joey, Arvon, they're a good side to watch or take it. Yeah. I mean, actually it was the late sixties when I started to watch and that was more uh, Gordon Livesey in goal, Eddie May, uh, young Mickey Evans, Gareth Davis, um, had taken over from Dave Powell. Gosh, I go back to Ali McGowan and and, and players like that. And uh, Bobby Shinton, Ian Moyer, uh, obviously Albert Kinsey, you know. And so that team uh, in the late 60s, early 70s was was tremendous to watch and started to work our way up the table and then ultimately start to get promotion. So, and it was, it was fun. I mean, for me, it was going to games with my fellow Grove Park uh, school pupils and, and guys that I played football with. Uh, we would go to the railway in. We were a little young for that, but we would. And uh, I can still see myself walking under the railway bridge to the Crispin Lane end. I don't know if it became the cop, but it was always the Crispin Lane end when I was there with, of course, the, uh, the movie theater seating that was likely to crash down on us at any given point there on, on the behind the goal. Um, and so, yeah, and, 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 and as things, and particularly as Arvin started to Welsh International and then, you know, put a stamp on that midfield, 
uh, almost impenetrable at the back, particularly with Eddie May there. Um, it was it was tremendous. And then, of course, you work your way through the Dave Gaskell era in goal, uh, Billy Ashcroft at centre back, you know, Smallman, Whittle, uh, Dixon McNeil coming along. So these eras that I lived through um, were, were amazing times. And of course, we had the benefit as well of home internationals at the end of the season at the race course. So we had that excitement. Um, and, and, you know, we would be still be in Europe because the Welsh Cup winners would play in the European Cup Winners' Cup. So we had this amazing seasons upon seasons. And again, with John Neal being there and, and, and guiding this team all the way to the second division, uh, they were phenomenal times, which I look back and gosh, what is it, 40, 50 years ago now, but I look back with fondness and I can still see it and from my perch at the Crispin Lane end and looking back. And of course, in those days, you could move around the stadium depending on which way Wrexham were kicking, right? So there was no, you know, you're stuck there and we could we could actually move back the other side. And as, as the game flowed, as the crowds got bigger, that became more difficult. But uh, I love those times and look back fondly uh, at uh, that period. And particularly, you know, you, I can see Brian Tinian, uh, Ian Moyer, uh, Bobby Shinton out there. Tremendous, tremendous times and a great team. Phenomenal team. Perhaps a strange thing to pick up from those fantastic memories, but I've always been curious about the the cinema seating in the uh, in the Crispin Lane. And it was was it the Pigeon Loft? It was known. What was it like sitting in there? Because to me, it looked like a health and safety nightmare. It was very rarely open, and um, you know, I I may have gone up there once just to have a look and and scurried down the steps again because it never quite felt and it it felt posh to go up there. It just wasn't where you went. But yeah, if you look at if you look at those photographs now and you compare that to health and safety as you would today, there's no way that sh thing should have been there. And in relation to what it probably cost to put there and how many people actually sat there and whether you got an extra 50p or something from them, it made no sense ultimately. Uh, and, and, and um, you know, I like I say, I, there was a little bit of a stigma to it uh, in, in the 70s. You, you just wouldn't go up there and most of the time. It was empty. Yeah, I don't think Wrexham counts would be passing that these days. Um, coming on to your sort of your own personal career development, how did you go from being a PE teacher? At, was it Dina Sprun that you taught up? Yeah. How yeah. did you go from from that to sort of overseeing large multinational companies? Well, the great thing, and, and again, this is and you guys will have it in your lives. These little moments in your life and these coincidences and 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 coming together of situations. I got a job, I went to Maidley College of Physical Education. So in those days, you these wing colleges, Loughborough, Carnegie, Crewe and Alsager, Maidley, St. John's York, Jordan Hill in Edinburgh. I was fortunate to get into uh, Maidley. I always wanted to be a PE teacher. My PE teacher at Grove Park and then Yale, Sixth Form College, O.M. Edwards was somebody that I looked up to and he became my role model. So being a physical education teacher is what I wanted to be. I got to Escaldina Spran and my head of department was clearly there for the duration and I wasn't really going to go anywhere. But one thing that was fortunate about teaching in Llangollen, of course, is the Eisteddfod. And so I had long summer holidays um, that allowed me, my college professor at Maidley had already come over here to California, Eddie Robinson, and came over and, and landed in Long Beach, California, just south of L.A., and invited a lot of uh, the students over to be coaches. And I took that opportunity 
um, to go over, and I could go over for months at a time because we kind of shut down in Langotlan for the Eisteddfod uh, in early June, and, and we're not re required to report back until kind of mid-September. And this allowed me to have a full two and a half months in America, and I really got a taste, and this is the mid to late 70s, and I really got a taste of, of being here applying what I had learned, uh, you know, as a, as a physical education teacher, taking my scouseness and uh, my, uh, my, my scouse whaleyness at that point, uh, and applying that uh, and um, being able to try to think to myself, I'm going to make a living here. And it was a lot to do with, I was just not going to get anywhere in my career at Oskaldunas Brown. Um, because as I say, the head of department was probably there and was for another 10, 15 years. So I started to think about what could I do, and teaching was wonderful. But boy, I tell you, January's in in, in the Tlangothlin Hills, just below us, called, you know, Dinas Brown up there. That's hard work, and um, you know, the snow's coming in sideways. So, infamously, I got a phone call in December of 1980 from Eddie from glorious Long Beach, California. Said, "Would you would you like to come over permanently?" And um, yeah, so I you know talked to my girlfriend. And uh, we both went over and it was tough for the first couple of years. I had to do my master's degree to stay legal in the country. But by sheer coincidence, my mother was born in America. My grandparents came over from Liverpool uh, in the late 1920s, uh, classic Liverpool sailor, shipbuilder, sailor in between the wars and, and, and worked in the Boston shipyards. My mum was born in Boston, Massachusetts on January the 1st, 1930. So. God bless her, I asked her to go down to Grosvenor Square, where the U.S. Embassy was at the time, pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States, and they gave her an American passport, and, and she sent it to me, and that got me what's known as your green card. And that got me on my career path, and, and still coaching uh, soccer was, was not going to be something that was going to keep me going uh, from a career perspective. I needed more, and I wanted more. So I knew I could apply everything that I had had that was inbred in me, as well as the learnings of what Americans want. They, for some reason, when they hear the likes of us talking, they think because we've got a British accent that we're intelligent, you know, it's fool them once. Um, and so I use those, those skills, teaching skills, growing up in a pub, uh, being comfortable around adults. I'd never sold anything in my life and, and started selling Patrick football boots. And, um, I uh, became the sales manager, moved up to San Francisco, and eventually became president of Patrick uh, USA and, and fighting against Nike and Adidas and Puma in those days, but learned a lot about building businesses, was recruited then to Boston, back to my mom's birthplace to work for Reebok. And again, started off as director of soccer, immediately heading over to the UK and getting players uh, gosh, uh, Dennis Bergkamp, Ryan Giggs, um, Andy Cole, you know, just and, and really starting to build out um, what the Reebok roster would look like. Then got a broader role of just doing global sports marketing for Reebok and uh, had a wonderful nine years there in the in the midst of the sneaker wars, which was Nike and Reebok. And, and you know, you kids are too young to remember, but Reebok was a bigger brand than Nike in the, in the beginning there, uh, thanks to the aerobics boom and lifestyle but nike steamrolled at us uh, in uh, in in the 90s and during the period i was there in boston so it was tough going but i learned again so much about business and then um again another fortuitous moment in my life i got a call from a executive recruiter and says what do you know about video games and 
nothing. And this is 1998. Sega is looking for a head of marketing to launch their new console, the, the Dreamcast. And what really piqued my interest was it was online, albeit dial up, but it was online. And I thought this could be interesting. This could be the way that gaming gets out of boys in their bedrooms and becomes some mass market entertainment medium. And of course, as you look back now, of course it is and huge. Um, but those were the moments in your life you look back and go, I'm glad I took that phone call. I'm glad I said yes. I'm glad I took that risk. Peter, before yeah. before Liam goes on, can I just thank you for Soul Calibur? Because that, that that game really helped me through through uni. Uh, Crazy Taxi, notable uh, notable <laughs> game as well. But but Soul Calibur yeah. was absolutely brilliant. It was tough getting Soul Calibur um, because it, you know Sony wanted to protect all the Japanese developers. Did not want Dreamcast in any way uh, to be successful. But we got Soul Calibur, and then we managed to you know obviously first party game Sonic Adventure, but Ready to Rumble from Midway, Trick Style, Activision, Hydro Thunder. Crazy Taxi, of course, internal. And remember, Sega was kind of an arcade company, and, and so we were able to utilize that. But Soul Calibur was probably the best playing game of the launch titles. And, and you know, that launch lineup will never, ever be beaten uh, when you look at all the brand new intellectual property that Sega had. So, but that that got me going in my my video game career. At this point, I mean, your, your career is already more fascinating than anything I've ever done in my career path, but coming on to becoming Liverpool CEO, was that everything that you hoped it would be? And do you think it shows, because there's perceptions around this, that you know North American ownership in football can really work? Well, it certainly can work. I mean, I mean and it is working. But yeah, if we fast forward to the Liverpool days, you know, I'd, I'd then been um, five years in Seattle running Xbox and then nearly 10 years at EA started off as president of EA sports and then chief operating officer at EA. And, but it, but it got to know, interestingly, John Henry in particular, you know, everybody used to say, you need to talk to Peter Moore. Here's a guy who lives in Boston is a Red Sox fan, worked for Reebok, but is a Liverpudlian and understands the game, et cetera, et cetera. I was this kind of unicorn. And eventually, uh, again, you get a call from an executive recruiter and um, they're looking for somebody to replace Ian Eyre, who had given kind of one year's notice. And we had uh, three or four months of conversations because it was not going to be easy for me to walk away from EA. And it was not going to be easy for me to come back to the UK. Yeah, I'm, I'm English and, and, and of course I can go back. And I used to come back three or four times a year to watch games, see my family in Wrexham. But... This was this was not inconsequential. American wife and and you know kind of walked away from a huge contract at EA uh, for this job of a lifetime and um, was very fortunate, as I said at the outset, of being there. I think at the right time as the team was the on the ascendancy. Um, but yeah, I was um, North American ownership recognized that they needed somebody that had. A technology background, entertainment background, understood branding, um, being a fan um, was a plus or a minus, and we can talk about that. And there was a lot of conversation of whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but I think for me, understanding and empathizing and being uh, a Liverpudlian and understanding what the city's about and the people are about and what they were looking for, particularly with fundamentally absentee ownership that that really came over from Boston, I, I saw my role is to build that bridge between the fans and the club, and then the fans, the club and ownership and, and, and ownership, I think, saw that they needed somebody 
on the ground, not disembodied somewhere else, but literally in Merseyside being the face of the club and being that linkage back to, to Boston, to Fenway Sports Group. What are the pros and cons then, do you think, Peter, in terms of being a fan as CEO? Can you, can you get a bit too close to it? Are you a bit too emotionally invested in it sometimes? Absolutely. And, and, and I did that on a number of occasions where I look back and I thought, you know, I shouldn't have done that. And particularly in social media where I would get just a little too fanboyish uh, and, and rein myself in immediately. But it, it's hard when you're so, it's seven day a week job as well. This is not something that uh, you get the weekends off. Uh, you know, you're traveling with the team, uh, particularly if you're in Champions League as we were, you know, you come back, you play on a Saturday. Uh, maybe you have some time on a Sunday, but then back in the office Monday, Tuesday, you're on a plane to Madrid or Barcelona or Moscow, and then come back, you know, in the middle of the night, uh, the next night, or even the following day. And so, and you do get emotionally wrapped up. And, um, you know, fundamentally, I'm a fan first and foremost, that just happens to be fortunate enough to have some business acumen and some awareness of, of you know, what the job requires to be able to do that. But there was a a couple of occasions in particularly tweeting silly stuff. Um, what kind of I, thing? I'm intrigued. Is there anything specific that comes to mind? Yes. I, I, we were in that real push with Man City, as we seem to always be. And um, Norwich beat them. And I was at home. And, I, you know, you're watching every game because you're doing the math all the time of what it takes to catch up with them. And I tweeted at Canary. And that was, that was dumb. I mean, it, it was only up there for 20 seconds. Uh, <laughs> but, but I tweet and I shouldn't have done that. And, and interestingly, ownership in Boston spotted it straight away and they called me straight away. And, and by the time I picked up the phone, I'd already deleted it. But that was, that was a moment uh, that, that I wish I could take back, you know, as one of those. And there was being on social media. I was the only Premier League CEO on social media. It's a dangerous thing, but I believe that, engagement with fans and I'd learned this in my in particular my EA days of engaging and showing a human face and interacting and listening to problems and 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 you know let me tell you video games and, and video gamers and football fans they're all cut from the same cloth there's passion there's emotion there is disdain there's vitriol and so you have to manage that and, and EA well, you know, as big as Liverpool in some instances three four hundred million gamers playing EA games every month um, and so I, I started on Twitter at EA to try to manage some of the issues that we were having and to, to basically show a human face and, and, and some sympathy and empathy and explanation for decisions we made. Um, and I did the same thing at Liverpool. And it, it, was, it was bluntly controversial uh, internally um, that at times it was deemed unstatesmanlike, um, unpresidential, I remember was one, but I believed in it. I believed in, in engaging, particularly a working class city like Liverpool and a global fan base. I coined a phrase very early on when I realized who we were, local heart, global pulse. And that's what Liverpool Football Club is and what Wrexham is moving to pretty quickly. And, um, you know, and, and, and so it's fraught with challenges. Um, getting too close to the fans is a problem. Uh, times, but I think that the upside outweighed the downside where people, when I left uh, in, in my final days before I headed out and it was the height of COVID, if there was one compliment that I heard over and over again that resonated with me and, and, and touched me was, you made me feel closer to the club. 
that those are the words I always remember. I forget trophies and everything, and those were great, but you made me feel closer to the club because we would spend, we would do so much in the city from a community perspective, a charitable perspective, fan engagement perspective, making the stadium feel warmer, working on a, a, a welcoming environment at Anfield, home and away fans. I mean, we got Premier League Stadium of the Year every year for just the way, I don't know if you guys have been to Anfield recently, but just the way you feel and made to feel when you go there for a big club, it still feels like you're getting a warm Scouse welcome. And that was very, very important. At the same time, and this was the danger at times, reaching out to the global fan base. Because you walk around Anfield, you're going to hear 25 different languages. It's truly a global football club. But there's friction that that creates between local fans and international fans. And our job, and I was very focused on that, is managing that, that we're all Liverpool fans and, and we need to coexist. And it's a very welcoming city. It's a very diverse city. Um, but we needed, there was always this little edge of they're taking my tickets away. I have this God-given right. My dad went, my granddad went. And how can somebody, you know, and dangerously doesn't look like me or sound like me, how dare they get a ticket? And so this was always something we had to juggle and balance and for the most part worked out well. Yeah, I think we're starting to see some of those, um, some of those things at um, Wrexham right now. And um, you touched slightly on um, the rivalry with Man City. Do you think putting it in context now, when you look back at it, what, what Liverpool achieved during that period against let's be honest, the financial might of Man City is slightly underappreciated, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think so. I mean, we we went nose to nose and it's 97 points, which on any other season, will will you're walking away with the league by February with that when you're on that pace. But City were a tremendous team, are a tremendous team. And for us to get that close, you know, on, on those final days when City's away at Brighton, we've got Wolves at home and, you know, we're, we're waiting for them to slip up and actually Brighton scores first. And if you remember those days and we had these few minutes of euphoria, but it, 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 it's an amazing, because getting that many points in the Premier League, it, it, and I went to every game and I could see the stress on the players and getting on the plane afterwards and what it took to be ready whilst playing in the Champions League as well. And whilst winning Champions League um, in Madrid, the the stress and toil, psychological and physical on those players and to keep up with City who, you know, to their credit, probably had two squads that they could interchange at any given time and not drop in quality was was phenomenal. And we do take great pride in being a self-sustaining football club and, and doing things, not, not the City, saying City's doing anything wrong, but doing things what we felt was the right way, the Liverpool way. Peter, um, I think most of us in here, if not all of us, will certainly remember where we were when we first heard that Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds were those interested in taking over Wrexham Football Club. When did you first get wind of it? How did you first hear about it? And what was your initial reaction to it? Did you think it was a wind-up? What, what was your first thoughts? Well, I first heard, so I've got to go back to 2010. There's a company called Inner Circle. Uh, that does a very nice job in, in pairing up investors and sports clubs, in particular football clubs, and in particular American, North American investors and, and European football clubs. And so I had uh, got to know Steve Horowitz, gosh, 10, 12, 13 years ago when I gave him my views on Fenway Sports Group 
um, uh, purchasing Liverpool, infamously away from Hicks and Gillette during those dark days. And um, Steve pinged me uh, as I was returning back from, from the UK and, and coming here to California and said, you know, can we get on a, on a quick Zoom call? I've got something interesting for you, which is, you know, we're, we're pairing together um, some celebrities that are interested in Wrexham. And he remembered my Wrexham roots and um, said, I'd really like your take on this. Um, so we, we did a couple of calls and then it was very clear it was Ryan and Rob. And, and um, you know, the next thing I know, Rob's showing up in my house right here. Um, and we spend two and a half hours uh, he lives uh, down in Brentwood, which is a, a posh suburb of LA. And uh, it's about 90 minutes away from where I live here in Santa Barbara in Montecito. And um, we had a fascinating couple of hours. I mean, he clearly wanted me to to, to come back. And, and, and unfortunately, just I wasn't in a position to come back again, turn around, stop the boats, turn the containers around, sell the house again after buying it two weeks ago and heading back to Wrexham. But I offered every ounce of whatever wisdom and experience I had to support him. And so we had a great chat about the history of the club, the history of the town, you know, the the the, the coal mining and the agricultural, all the way to the beast market down there and, and steelworks in Brumbo and everything that had made Wrexham what it was and the tough times that certainly when I lived there that we went through. And he got a real feel for it. And he'd explained to me that during lockdown, he was, you know, he's a big FIFA player with his kids. And so he's somewhat of a, a football fan, but he discovered Sunderland till I die. And so he watched it and it immediately resonated with him. He told me that, that this is Philadelphia. He said, this is no different in the old days of being an Eagles fan or a 76ers fan or a Phillies fan. And so um, he, I guess, contacted Inner Circle and said, you know, we, because he'd never met Ryan Reynolds, uh, would like to buy a football club. And why? Because we think we can do good with him. Um, and, and it could be a platform for rejuvenating a community that is falling on difficult times as, as we've all watched Sunderland till I die. And, you know, a huge football club that means everything to a city there that has fallen on rough times with shipbuilding moving away. And so we had a long chat. I said, look, I'll advise you. And so, um, and we shook hands and you know, he tweeted, which put me in a bad spot, something to the effect of don't get on the plane unless you know who the pilot is. And I'm not still not sure what he meant by that. But it was one of those where I had to explain, look, everybody got excited. I said, I'm not coming back, but I'm going to help and, and I'll do everything I can uh, to, to, to help um, Rob and Ryan and everybody at that time. It, these were early days. And, and Dan Connolly uh, was, you know, PR. And I don't think Sean Harvey had come on board yet, and certainly Fleur or Les Reed hadn't come on board. Humphrey was, as he calls himself, the football whisperer, had gone over and tried to figure out what we had. Obviously, the trust still was in control of the club, and, and Spencer and the guys were very, very um, supportive of this. And so we went, to, and obviously that fateful evening where uh, the trust approves uh, the takeover, I spent a lot of time then doing a lot of TV and um, uh, web interviews with Bloomberg, with BBC News, with Sky Sports, explaining what this is about. Because there was still maybe over here, but certainly over there, some skepticism of, oh, these guys are going to come in, going to buy the club and then things will fall on rough times and they'll go, you know, I got movies to do. And 
Always Sunny in Philadelphia, a mythic quest to film and, and that they would walk away. And, and it was very clear to me that that was not their intention whatsoever. From the get go, um, film crews arrived and, um, you know, we in fact, I was still at the process of selling my house and, and a film crew um, came to my house during lockdown and, and captured Hum Humphrey and I talking about this. I, I think it's fallen on the cutting room floor, but we did a lot of work then to uh, get the club up and running. And really the goal then was to prove to people that this was not some Hollywood um, chasing of a, of a quick dream to do a documentary series, then walk away because it wasn't. And obviously, as we now see, it isn't. And, and that was my role uh, was to use, if you will, kind of my credentials to be the conduit between in particular American media, but also I would talk to Richard Williams at the leader and I would do all the interviews that were required of me. So a lot of early mornings um, started talking to Glyndua University, which which I know well, uh, the, the because they've got a, a tremendous video game uh, program there. And then called my old mates at EA and said, all right, I need to get everybody on a uh, Zoom call here because um, EA liked the idea of being involved with Ryan Reynolds' Maximum Effort production company. And of course, Ryan and Rob, and in particular, Rob wanted Wrexham in the game. And so we, uh, I called in some favors from my old uh, uh, staff and, and we got on calls and figured out what we were going to do to be able to, to get this done. And of course, uh, you can play them in the rest of the world uh, mode there. And so did a bunch of stuff um, in those early days until we always knew that there'd be a full-time staff and everybody would get going and get a manager hired. Of course, you know, Parky had not come in then. And um, once that happened, I started to take a step back. I had full-time jobs and actually then became the founding owner of my own football club here in Santa Barbara, which is ongoing. And, uh, and, and then more of a Wrexham fan and would ping Rob from time to time. And, you know, when things were going rough and couldn't get out that first season, um, and, and still stay involved. And in particular, only last week exchanged some messages with Steve Horowitz. So, but my goal, my job, if you will, in those first four or five months was to, um, validate that these guys were real, they're sincere. Uh, of course they didn't step foot in Wrexham at that point and, um, reassure people that based on the conversations I was having and what I was seeing that these were legitimate owners that that not only wanted to make the football club successful but by association bring Wrexham back uh, to a sense of pride uh, and belief those um those texts that you had when when you mentioned about the the rougher part of not going up last season was that i mean it's clear to all of us now because we we can see how vested they are into it you know emotionally um from all the times they come over i think he's eight trips in i think already this season rob you know that's that's a that's a pretty big commitment so when 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 there was those moments last season where we didn't quite get over the line how difficult was it for 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 rob and ryan to kind of get past that that we weren't just going to have it our own way like that and we were going to have to rebuild again what what, what was the advice at that, at that point was it just a case of it's a setback but be patient and it will happen yeah, I think, you know, for them to believe, which they didn't necessarily, you know, that, that in their first full year, there was going to be promotion. They understood how difficult it is because of the ridiculousness of only one team getting automatic promotion. And, and of course, we made the playoffs, but, um, you know, they, they, they understood. Uh, and, and 
the exchanges were out of frustration um, of we got to get out of this league. We really need to get back where we belong, which is to the football league. And it's not going to be easy, but they were in it for the long term. And um, there was nothing along the lines of I'm done with this or the hell with this. You know, it was very much let's go again. Um, and then, you know, you've got the purse strings get uh, loosened a bit and you, you go get your Paul Mullins and your Ollie Palmers and you start building a squad because you need a squad. There's what, 46 games? I mean, it, and you're going to places that the pitches may not be, uh, you know, what you're used to playing on as, as good players are, are, you know, used to playing on something. And the race course pitch, of course, went through its trials and tribulations, but finally got a decent playing surface. But it is tough. You know, you go away on Wednesday nights to some of these places and it's no disrespect to these places. But man, you know, and, and, and I think Rob could not get his head wrapped around um, how you could get out of here. And now only one team could be automatically promoted and the rest was a dogfight, as we saw with Notts County, you know, and only last minute. And what a season they had. And they're on the brink. You know, was, I think it's Boreham Wood, right? It was like going out. I mean, that's the ridiculous of the whole thing. Um, and, and I'm starting to hear that it may well be what it needs to be, which is at least two and maybe three teams go up and down. And, and that's the way it needs to be. But there was this disrespect for years from the Football League that, yeah, we're only going to let one team in because it's a bunch of farmers down there in the National League. And uh, they're, they're not capable and the quality isn't there. It's too big of a step up. But there's no doubt that if both Wrexham and Knox County come up, they could both thrive next season in League Two with the squads they had. Well, you said earlier that, Rob tried to uh, tried and failed with the hard sell to get you to come back in like a full time sort of capacity. Did uh, did did he try and sort of give the elbow to, to Ryan to give you a, a call as well? Say, come on, you know, just to put that extra extra thumb on the back of your head. Say, you know, come on over. It, it, it there's so many complications. You know, I, my wife and I have six kids here, all Americans. That that you know, we it was time for us to go back and 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 look what I said. Look, uh, and nobody's paying me. I said, look, I'll do everything for a football club that gave me so much joy and pleasure when I was young. And, and, and you know, I followed uh, from afar, you know, well, every day of my life from whenever they're playing the weekends. Obviously, I'm watching Liverpool, but my first thing I look at is how did Wrexham get on? And um, yeah, I think I think Rob understood that it was going to be really difficult to get me back there. There's so many complications. You know, I bought a home here in Montecito and back and, and did my what turned out to be three and a half years at Liverpool but it was time to to come back to the family here um, and, and I think he accepted the fact pretty quickly that that, that I wasn't going to go back and and but but that I would help and, and and that's what I did and try to apply everything that I could do uh, from here uh, to I think I, I immediately figured out I need to validate that this is for real and that's the role I could play rather than be boots on the ground uh, in Wrexham. And um, if you will, if use my credentials as the former CEO of Liverpool to give that sense of credibility that I, that I, that I understood what it took and that I met with these guys and, and they were legit and, and I believed every word they said. Uh, as, as an ownership model, is, is, is this one of the most unusual kind of ownership models that, that we've got globally? I mean, from, from what you can see, and, and if so, do you see it being replicated? Can it be a success now? There's a template there for it because we've seen what's happened. It's only taken a couple of years, but the building block, blocks are now in place for, for Exxon to conceivably go through the leagues. Yeah, I think, 
I think more and more you're seeing the uh, from certainly from my uh, perch here in, in in the United States more and more interest in in European football as an investment model in which uh, investors who who may uh, are getting priced out bizarrely of of American soccer with MLS getting three hundred million dollars for expansion franchises into Major League Soccer you can pretty much buy Newcastle United for that. And uh, so you've got a, a very overheated market here in the US, um, particularly at the MLS uh, level, and uh, investment groups, celebrities. Um, the game, the game, I've lived here for 42 years, off and on. And I've been involved in soccer, personally and professionally, for just about every one of those years in some shape or form. Uh, I've never seen in the last four or five years the game finally taking off to where I knew it would. Uh, from me explaining what the game was in the early 80s to sporting goods retailers who thought this was some communist sport that was invading their indigenous American games and, 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 and a real bias against soccer because you know American football, basketball, hockey, Baseball wanted all the best athletes uh, for themselves, and soccer was was not a threat because colleges didn't have many soccer scholarships, and there really wasn't professional leagues that could give you that that direct from when you're six to being 26 that I'm going to kick a ball here in in the states. Completely different now, and so I think that what you're seeing is you know you've got both celebrity groups here, uh, but and and the women's game as it is in England uh, in Britain just on fire uh, from the perspective of finally getting around to the fact that, that women are a massive market for this. And, you know, I, I, I smile and, and, and I'm so happy because when I was PE teacher in Clangothlin, the girls weren't playing football. Uh, it was netball and, and, you know, they got the gym and we were always outside in the snow. But look at it now. And, and, I, and you know, the Wrexham women getting their, uh, uh, their championship as well. It is, it is now... This sport now has really taken its place, not only in the hearts and minds of the world, but in the pocketbooks of the world as well. And I think what you're seeing is huge opportunities for international investment to come in. And more and more, if you go look at ownership models in, in, in British clubs, there is a lot of North American investment, either majority or minority, uh, that just love being a part of it. Um, so, but the business model of, of, if you will, celebrities coming in, um, I think we'll we'll continue, um, you know, and and uh, I hope it's because of the goodness of the heart, which it is with Rob and Ryan, and not because they want to make a quick buck. Before I bring Reese in, just tell us a little bit about your football club. You did mention it before. Here's the name drop opportunity. Tell us a bit about your club. So, potted history of that. I arrived back here in in, in California, and uh, very quickly, USL figures out the former CEO of Liverpool is now residing in Santa Barbara, uh, a market that they have tried for a couple of years to get going that were very integral to their West Coast expansion. The way soccer works here, you've got MLS that sits at the top of the pyramid, and then USL sits right below that. And so we've got a proper pyramid now in the United States. And, you know, one of these days we may get promotion and relegation as well as part of that pyramid. We shall see. But um, I, and, and so I have a meeting here pretty soon after I arrive and, and meet with USL executives and say, look, I'll be an engaged minority owner. My exact words, I, you know, I was working full time at Unity Technologies, working on interesting stuff in, in sports and live entertainment. 
Uh, I'm on multiple boards, you, know, you name it. I'm still working in my foundation back in Liverpool. Well, pretty quickly, three months later, I am knee deep in this and building this thing from scratch, from the name on a clean sheet of paper to negotiating stadiums, to building out branding, positioning, um, working with the city council, all of that, and, and uh, starting to build investment groups around here. And, and so our plans right now, uh, we will commence play uh, in March of 2024, the men's team in USL League One. Um, women's team will, in all likelihood, be playing Super League uh, later that year. Um, I'm hopeful of getting my final deal done at University of California, Santa Barbara, 17,000 seater soccer specific stadium that sits right on the Pacific Ocean here. And um, we will be playing and it's community focused. I am doing this because I know what the power of the game can do to make people's lives better, give them hope, give them opportunity, give them optimism. Um, and, you know, as as beautiful and wealthy as a community I live in, like any community, it's got pockets that that people need help. And we've got a very diverse community here in Santa Barbara um, and a very strong Hispanic heritage and, and community that love the game, but also could use some help to play. I mean, one of the downsides of the popularity of the game here, it is very expensive for your kids to play soccer. I mean, in the thousands of dollars a year. And so what we want to do is be able to democratize that opportunity and not make it about can you afford for your kids to play youth soccer, but making sure that we give them a dream and support them financially if we can. We've already funded our, our community uh, charity, Fundacion Sin Cielo, which is uh, Sky Foundation. We are Santa Barbara Sky Football Club. Uh, my wife, who helped me with um, the Peter Moore Foundation and still does um, activities, chair yoga, back to Liverpool every week with a group of um, women and, and, and uh, men that, that um, needed help during COVID. And this thing just has continued um, to do chair yoga. And, and now they don't even need chairs. Um, so she is helping me with that. But we're building a community football club uh, that is community first. Um, we, it's a massive soccer town here. One of the great things going for it. American football is not played here at any real level. The university is a soccer and basketball university, UCSB, University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, hence, they have a soccer specific stadium, not a, uh, an American football stadium. And so we're, we think all of the stars are aligning here to create a sustainable football club that will be very competitive and will continue to be part of this amazing rising tide of the game here uh, in this country. What a project. I mean, best of luck with that. Um, and we'll definitely be keeping an eye out for it. And, and, and talking about that rising tide, going back to Wrexham, you know, obviously one of the real key income streams uh, for, for the club, if they're going to make it all the way and go all the way, is the American market. Just how can the club maximise those sort of revenue streams, do you think? What do they need to do? Well, it's amazing to me as a as a Rexamian that that you can actually walk around and talk to people and say Rexham and they know exactly what you're talking about. It it's really? mind blowing at times. <laughs> it, it really is. And so, Welcome to Rexham has done phenomenally well here on on American cable television. It was on the FX channel and is in syndication. And great anticipation for um, for the next series, which will obviously be the promotion series um, uh, season series. Um, and, and obviously, Ryan and Rob have done a 
great job in, in bringing to life, life in Wrexham and using Wrexham very much uh, to, to promote the goodness that football can bring to a community. With that, there's no, you know, <laughs> there's no coincidence you're getting the TikToks and the Expedias and everything that you're getting. And I think the team coming here this summer um, and playing, you know, Chelsea and Manchester United and recently announced Galaxy 2 here in uh, South of me in Los Angeles will only continue to build that foothold into the U.S. market and having U.S. market and, and have, look, having Ryan and Rob's power to go into any boardroom in the world, sit down with uh, folks and make a pitch for Wrexham um, is, is an immense, immense plus. But yeah, I mean, growing um, the global fan base, uh, continuing to, um, you know, keep these the series moving. This thing could go on for a long time as Wrexham hopefully moves its way through the league pyramid. Um, but yeah, getting that money in, because let's not forget, now you're in the football league, there's different scrutiny levels of where money comes from and where it gets spent. Well, yeah, I was gonna, I was going to say as well, in terms of, you know, something that keeps um, being brought up and, and it's a term that is sort of derided with some scorn over maybe this side of the pond by some quarters is that, you know, Wrexham is an underdog story, right? Because I suppose I can understand how that sticks in the throat if we're outspending a club near to us. But do you think that there is a lot of mileage in that, and particularly in the US, because if you know the, the only British teams that they're supporting, you know, are United, City, Chelsea, Liverpool, etc. So, you know, do you think that there is potential for people to actually be bought over from those clubs and say, you know, I supported Wrexham from when they were in the National League and now they're in the Championship or pushing for the Premier League? Yeah, I think so you've got to look at the ecosystem of football here and football awareness. Um, when I first arrived, there wasn't any. I mean, it really was an immigrant story. There was nothing on television. And you you fast forward to today where LA Galaxy versus LAFC is getting 45,000. And I say that because now the generation and maybe the second generation that's come through when I first arrived here, their kids were playing, but they never played. Now, all of a sudden, their kids have kids. And that, that is a football culture, a soccer culture in families that I played and, and your dad played and your mom played very importantly here. So you've got that awareness. And then you look at what's happened in the last 10 years. NBC Sports has been superb. They took over the Fox uh, Sports um, uh, license for the Premier League, and they've invested amazingly in, in, the, in the sport to make that much watch TV every Saturday and Sunday mornings. And the viewership numbers are through the roof. And I, you know, I'm in a unique position because I could tell you in the 80s, there's no way I'm having a football conversation with anybody. Now, I'll walk out from my house, I can stop and in any bar, somebody's going to engage me and have a chat about, you know, what is Chelsea thinking? You know, can Arsenal hang on? What do you think that City is going to do in these last four games? These are, these are an entire generation that can talk football. You add Ted Lasso on top of that. You then add Welcome to Wrexham on top of that. And you've got this entire ecosystem that's both the game itself and what's known as shoulder programming which is all of the programming that goes in and around it. Uh, there's a program here called Men in Blazers, which you, you may be familiar with, but Men in Blazers took, for the first time, legitimized the American soccer fan and didn't talk down to them. For 20 years, it's like, you know, you're watching a commentary of a game. It's like, it's a corner kick. A corner kick is when the defender is the last player to touch. It's like, 
all of a sudden now there's a legitimacy. Nobody needs to explain that anymore to anybody. And so um, you have all of that. Men in Blazers then is is two guys that 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 built this very quirky show that NBC got behind that took all of the things we love about football, not the, not necessarily the action on the field, but but Mourinho's antics over there and 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 you know Arteta and Jurgen Klopp and and fans and everything that goes on around the game, which then gave that extra texture and layer to Americans who love storylines and plots and narratives and stuff. Uh, and, and as well as watching 90 minutes of football. And so that's what you've got here now. I just finished watching you know, Newcastle Arsenal and, and I guarantee you those, those viewing numbers are in the millions watching that game here because it's 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Well, actually the game kicked off 8.30 West Coast, 11.30 you know, East Coast and numbers will be through the roof, guaranteed. Peter, you've been absolutely brilliant with your time. Uh, but before we let you go, do you mind if I pick your business brain for a, for a few questions? Sure. Um, firstly, um, I, w- I want to talk about the accounts. Now, I, I, very broad brushstrokes. I know you're not, you, you're not completely au fait with everything going on behind the scenes. But just in very general terms, it's, it, there seemed to be a very, a very big turnover, a very big growth there. Um, but it would be a miss of us Wrexham fans if we didn't sort of look through everything. And one thing we had noticed was there was a, a loan from the owners, which which had a little bit more interest on it than than many than many thought you know would happen. Really, basically, it's like I don't know three or four percent above above the interest rate. Can you just reassure us that that's just a normal football thing? And, you know, we, we don't because because of what's happened before, we're always looking at things. But but, you know, we, we just want to we just want to make sure that that's just normal sort of football, football finance, basically. Yeah, I think what tends to happen here. So when you look at football finance, there's really two buckets. There's the capital expenditure, right? Capital expenditure is like, all right, I'm writing a million pound check to, to go build something uh, at Crispin Lane or more likely a four or five million pound check to, to, to go build out. And that that doesn't come cheaply and interest rate. And I don't know what the interest rate is, but interest rates now are you know starting to get really high because it's just the necessary trying to to stave off a recession globally. Uh, and inflation is kicking in, obviously. I, I, I can't comment on whether that interest rate of a loan back and, and by the way, no different than most clubs at Liverpool. The ownership group, Fenway Sports Group, loaned the club money, which in the end came back low interest or interest free. But the money, the checks are written by ownership to build the new main stand and more recently to build the uh, the expansion of Anfield Road, which will put Anfield at 61,000 next season. So it's pretty standard that clubs don't necessarily want to go to banks and if owners feel that you know, they're going to build out, look, they're going to build out the value of the club. And the one great way of doing that, A, is to win trophies, but you do is build, you've got to build infrastructure. It's no good Wrexham thinking we're going to get to the Premier League with the way the race course is, right? Or it was, right? It just isn't going to happen. You've got to invest tens of millions of pounds to, to, to get the race course. The floodlights obviously are, are now going in. Getting behind the goal is a little excruciating watching the games and there's like nobody behind the goal. Right? And, and we all know, but if you're an international view, I often have to explain, why is there nobody behind the goal? Well, it's, it, they call it the cop now. When I was a kid, it was a Crispin Lane and, and, and it was a disaster and, and, and it's never had the money to build out, but now it does. 
look, I think all you need to worry about is the, that the owners uh, uh, have the sufficient funding and wherewithal, and most importantly, desire to, to, to make the club at an infrastructure level ready to go all the way that they possibly can within that league structure. That's what you we all should think about as fans. Whether that, there's that a leads me to, that leads yeah, me whether to a couple mind. of points more on a loan, I don't know. No, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, I, I know you're not completely au fait with the accounts. Um, I mean, but that does sort of lead me to my next question, which is, do even Rob and Ryan have Premier League money? And if would it, would it we come to a stage, maybe if they do manage to make it through League Two, maybe even League One, that they'll have to bring a partner in, someone who can sort of aid the growth uh, and have that sort of last push. If, you know, Rob and Ryan are always talking about the Premier League, but... You know, can they do it on their own, basically? Look, there's no doubt um, there, there are smaller communities that have Premier League teams, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, Bournemouth, um, you know, and so and done right. And a smaller stadium, by the way, the Vitality Stadium, but done right over a period of time with measured investment to build out the infrastructure step by step. Yeah, I think ultimately this will require uh, further investment outside of Rob and Ryan. They, look, these are two busy guys as well with their own businesses. And they they would then, I think, welcome further investment as you build out. Because then you start talking, you, you, your valuations are in the hundreds of millions of pounds of your football club. And, and people will come in and support, particularly with the notoriety now of, of the club. And I'm sure, I don't know, but I'm sure people are already knocking on their door saying, hey, how do I get involved? You know, I'd love to be a part of this, but you've got to take a measured approach. And yeah, they talk about Premier League. We all know, you know, that what that would take to get there. I think the focus needs to be is, all right, let's establish ourselves back in the league, league two, get a feel for what the quality is, what we need to do to build the squad, get the stadium built. The benefit, you know, of the stadium, you're seeing the investment in the town itself now with this 25 million pounds coming in in the, in the level up funding that's coming in in and around that stadium area with the railway station and all this stuff. I mean, just pointing to that, I, I'm sure it would have come anyway, but I'm sure having Rob Ryan and Wrexham Football Club be successful, you know, and, that, and the pressure that was put on that is let's get this town, our town city back to where it was, you know, and, and a sense of pride. This is this is the biggest population center in North Wales. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that has every opportunity to be a thriving industrial commercial uh, city again, gateway to Merseyside, straight into Manchester, right down to the Midlands. I mean, it, it's a perfect spot for that. And having football as the epicenter of that and having pride in your team and having the global reach uh, uh, that it currently has, um, you know, all of those indicators point to you having that. But it's like, how do you eat the elephant? It's like one bite at a time here. So I, I don't grimace when I hear Premier League conversations. I keep thinking, all right, let's let's get back in the league. Let's get established. Let's get the stadium right. Let's start building the squad and let's build a five to ten year plan for where this club needs to be. And last last one from me before we do a, a, a very quick fire round is there's some concerns among fans and we're talking about legacy fans now that maybe the club isn't as friendly as it used to be that you know you used to be able to wander into the club shop and Garrett will put your arm around you and you know answer your query straight away and you're not getting that now is that just a byproduct of 
professionalism as, as more and more people want want a piece of Wrexham because you know football clubs don't get everything right do they there was you know times at Liverpool where you didn't get everything right is that just is that just a natural sort of progression for this club now Look, you, 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 you either want scale, success, victory, moving up. And with that, you can't have Geraint talking to everybody that comes in the little club shop behind the stand. And by the way, it needs a new shop, right? And so from that, and, and, and no different than what we did in Anfield. We had a similar thing. Now you go to Anfield, I'm sure you've all seen it. The, the mega store is there because you've got to accommodate growth. With growth, sometimes comes distance. And, and, and there's no two ways about that. If you want to be small time and folksy and everybody knows everybody else, then great. But you're not going to work your way through the leagues being that way. You've got to have that, that, that magnitude of we're going to be a successful global football club. And with everything that comes with that is going to be scale and growth. And um, yeah, I mean, and you do lose, you know, unfortunately, that one to one relationship you might have. But as I said to you, Half an hour ago, one of my great memories is when I came into Liverpool, when I left Liverpool, forget everything else, fans. And, you know, if I go there now, they'll still say, you made me feel closer to the club. And, you know, that's one of the things that that a Fleur Robinson, that a, you know, Les Reed, Sean Harvey, Humphrey Kerr, these guys have got to focus on this. And that there's going to be more people coming in as you grow. You, you can't be a village football team uh, and, and, and go compete with Sunderland, who you will be pretty soon, all right? And so you've got to have um, that scale uh, and, and, and belief in yourself. And on that note, Peter, something else you mentioned earlier was about, you know, that tension that can arise between international fans, for example, and local fans. You know, what do you think the club can do to to try and sort of do what you did and keep that harmony. You know, one thing, one complaint at the moment is the kind of free-for-all that tickets have become, and it's become so hard. Do you think, you know, loyalty systems, point-based systems, is that something the club needs to be looking at quite soon? Yeah, I mean, you've got to figure out your balance of, of, of season ticks versus general admission. You've got to get that balance right. In the, It's great to, because I'm sure Wrexham could sell its entire stadium for, to season ticket holders without a problem, but you don't, then it's a closed shop and then, and then you're just not getting uh, young kids in there. You're not getting families that would love to go to a Wrexham game. So you get that balance right. Obviously, the stadium will expand in the next two seasons and you're going to have a lot more. I don't, I don't know what the final plan is, but, you know, 16, 17,000, let's say there. And, and you're going to be able to bring more people in there. Um, but you've got to get the balance right. And look, you can't have it both ways. You can't enjoy the fact that everybody knows your name. Uh, and then say, but don't come here, and, and and don't 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 you show up and take my ticket. Um, you've got to get that balance right, and it is goes back to local heart. So you focus on what makes Wrexham so special, very different than even Chester, right? Wrexham has this specialness, but then you know it, it also needs to scale and grow. You can't be. You can't be uh, small mind and closeted and, and be that tiny little football club that we all love and still go compete with the big boys. You've got to be able to expand and you've got to accept the fact, as the city does, that you've got um, uh, a tourist attraction with more and more people uh, that I talk to say, I'm going over to the UK. Uh, I'm going to go to Wrexham. I mean, I, and I'm serious. People are going, yeah, I usually go up there. I love going to Liverpool and, and obviously go to London, but I want to make a stop in Wrexham because I've been watching the documentary. So 
you know, when I first joined Liverpool, um, yeah, I, I'm a data guy. I come from tech and, and I straight away said, what do we bring into the city financially? They go, I don't know, a lot. I go, I, I can't deal with a lot. I need numbers. And so um, I, I contracted and retained Deloitte to do an economic impact report. And, you know, when Liverpool plays at home, uh, you know, can't get a hotel room, can't get a restaurant reservation. That Liverpool Airport is awash with incoming planes from from Scandinavia, from Western Europe, and so we, you know, and this is six years ago, we figured out about a half a billion pounds a year was coming into Greater Liverpool because of Liverpool Football Club. Ultimately, what Wrexham will do is an economic impact report. But the interesting thing that I found as part of this report is that people would come over for the game, and then they would come back for the city. And that was just always there. I came to Liverpool to watch them. I didn't realize what a great city Liverpool is and came back with my boyfriend, husband, girlfriend, wife, family for a second trip to, to visit the city itself. And imagine, you know, Wrexham's the gateway to beautiful North Wales, right? And so you think about somebody will do that at the club, or they should do, and, and, and do a, an economic impact report. And I think they'll find that, there are visitors coming to, to watch football that then come back to visit North Wales. And, and that would be a very important data point. And particularly when you're looking for funding from, from sources of what we can do uh, to help build out our community here and uh, help build out this as a destination. Because, I, you know, you guys are spoiled. You live, you live, you know, Clangothlin is right on your doorstep, Bettiscoid. Conway, Tlandidno, you know, all of these places, which are beautiful, the castles and um, but, you know, Americans love that stuff. And so I'm, I'm just focused on the Americans. But if football is the catalyst for bringing people to the area and spending money bluntly, then then God bless it. And I was going to say, as a club, then with that economic impact report, what does that allow you to do as a club? You know, is it in terms of speaking to governments, to funding, to, to sort of justify investment? Yeah, you go, you take it, you know, company like Deloitte, obviously, you know, worldwide company that, that it's an independent report. Um, in our case, they spent a couple of months uh, researching this. And, and, you know, when you're looking for help from civic, from the authorities, from town council, city councils, even Welsh governments, even, even London, right? You go, this is what we're doing here. This is the impact that we are having on this community. We need some help here. Um, you know, Welsh development funds, all the things that, that are there, because I always thought that money always ended up south um, and that, that there just wasn't enough coming. It was Cardiff, it was Swansea, right? And, and, and just not enough coming uh, up north. And, and you use this as data, you go into a conference, you smack it down. This is what we're doing, right? What, what are you going to do to help us continue this and, and bring life back to North Wales to to where it used to be in the industrial period. But, you know, we've had a tough time in the last few decades, unemployment levels and Rexham trying to find its identity. Yeah, we got the, you know, the trading estate, the industrial park, but what big companies want to like, I'm going to put my roots down in Wrexham and uh, I'm going to be a major employer. Uh, and, and Glendale University starting to churn out um, well-educated, um, uh, you know, campus hires that, that companies would come in and start to think and, and think about how that could grow because the catchment area of Wrexham is immense. 
is, is absolutely immense. And so that's what you do with an economic impact report. It validates what you're doing. And it also says, well, what are you doing to help? Peter, I'm sure I, I speak for the rest of us when I say we could have talked to you all day. I mean, it's been absolutely fascinating. But we, we always sort of end on, on a quick fire round. Now, now, these questions are designed for footballers. But, you know, how many years at Gresford as the right back? You know, you, you qualify. So all the people you played with, watched at Wrexham, watched at Liverpool, who would you think is the most skillful? Skillful? Um... Well, I played with Joey Jones. I was right back. He was left back. I'm not sure skill levels as you've got body count. Uh, Joey <laughs> would be right up there with him. But uh, gosh, I, 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 uh, I, I you know, I, I went on tour in Germany in 72 with Joey, but with Mickey Thomas, with Noddy. And uh, yeah, I can still see him jinking around as regards me having that 20 yards away looking at a player was, would, would be Mickey Thomas during during that period. And we were 18 or 19 during then. Um, and then watching players, we could go on for days about watching players. Um, who's the worst dressed? Um, again, playing or, or whatever. I mean, it could be someone in the Liverpool squad, or you just think, Oh, I'm not sure about that, about that clobber. Yeah, I mean, you look back in those 70s days, and, and, and Liverpool have just done this with the new home kit, and some of the I don't know if you saw the the, the launch video. I saw a lot of those pants in the 70s where players with the stack heels that that Noddy Holder would be wearing, you know, type things. So but but there are guys that, you know, look, Liverpool in particular, there are guys that really didn't care about yeah, the James Milners and Jordan Henderson's. This were always well put together. But as regards fashion sense, no, that's just not what they're going to be doing. The Robos of this world. So these, these guys and, and you don't have a great opportunity in modern football to have that sense of individualism, which you used to have in the old days, because when you travel now, uh, yeah. in Liverpool's case, you're in your training gear. And uh, then you go and, and, and train straight away. I very rarely saw them wearing their old stuff because it is 24-7. If you're not training, you're on a plane and or you're doing press interviews. So you didn't see the old days of Kevin Keegan and, and Tommy Smith and, and uh, you know, the permed hair of Graham Souness and all of the stuff that you saw in those days. It, it's different now. Um, who was the most underrated player? Who did you sort of think never really got the plaudits they deserved? Um, you know, you know that when I think back to the Wrexham days, and I know they got plaudits, but boy, if you watched uh, a Bobby Shinton and an Ian Moyer and a Brian Tinian, um, you know, the, the glory boys in those days were kind of Smallman and Whittle, right? And because they were the goal scorers, but but the guys behind... You know, a Billy Ashcroft at the back there. Gareth Davis was just amazing. And, and, and at times kind of Mr. Wrexham, if you will. Um, Mickey Evans. Um, Arvin Griffiths, I think, got the, the um, plaudits he deserved. Ended up with as a Welsh international, obviously. And, and Arvin still around as a news agent in Gresford. Uh, from the perspective of, uh, although I think he's given that up a while back, but he... I, I, I would say a Gareth Davis and maybe, you know, people, but, but I think about his contribution there and John Neal loved him uh, to that team, that sense of consistency and Mr. Reliable and organizing, you know, in those days, 
midfield and defense they were kind of fluid and and yeah that and mickey evans and and um gosh yeah i think of that albert kinsey was my first hero because just score goal ray smith you know could could score these goals way before your time but but these were great days at the race course um who is the biggest moaner uh and it could be a teammate or you know someone banging on your desk as ceo as liverpool well, I think Bruno Fernandes is a bit of a moaner, but that's just my Liverpoolianness. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, you know, the I'm not, I'm not going to name names, but the, the, there's always <laughs> that uh, that that they're always looking for something, you know. And, and boy, when you're the CEO of Liverpool, everybody's always looking for something. Usually tickets, and so there was uh, there was there was a nonstop progression. It was one of the biggest challenges of the role is everybody felt that they uh, had an obligation and deserved to be at Anfield. And that was not the case at all. And you spend a lot of your life saying no from Monday to Friday. And finally, in this quick fire round, uh, which player would you least like to fight? Joey Jones. Yeah. Totally. That's a popular, a popular <laughs> answer and the right answer. Yeah, well, having played with him, you know, uh, I've seen a few uh, right hooks go down in the older days when, look, when he ended up at, at Liverpool, there's a little more discipline required. But let me tell you, uh, yeah, there's, there, you know, that the, the classic, you know, this stuff uh, came out of uh, fullbacks in those days, myself included, uh, on the pitches we played on, um, you know, and, and, and the laws of the game being slightly different of how you could tackle from what angles and, you know, leave a bit after the tackle. My job was to take out the left winger because there were left wingers in those days. And Joey, I knew, would would sort out the right winger. Um, but yeah, I would not like to go up against in his head. Less about in his Liverpool days where he had to be a little bit more disciplined. But prior to that, man, I can see him in Germany playing on artificial surfaces, kind of the old red graph, you remember that? Just going in and taking out the Germans, as, as we would call it um, there. And we used, to, we used to have a great relationship with clubs in Germany. We'd do pre-season tours. This was for Northeast Wales uh, youth football. So Joey and I are four days apart from our birthdays. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we play for the same representative team. It was, it was great days. I say you had great relationships with German teams until you guys went there and ruined them. <laughs> there's some... There's some you go ask Reg Dyer, if you know Reg Dyer from the Wrexham Leader, you ask him some photographs. He accompanied us and he was for 20, 30 years, the photographer. Uh, there's, there's some stuff there and I've still got some of the newspapers, the leader 50 plus years ago, we would go there. And this was uh, this was great exchange um, to go into to German youth teams and we'd go for four or five days and it was exchange. They would come to, to Wrexham and play and, and we, we have great time. This was kind of preseason we would do this. It was wonderful. Right. Any last questions for for Peter before we let him go? Peter, are you still are you still fully ad advising Robin Ryan now? Is that still part of the of the thing? And and if so, what would be the advice going forward during this closed season? No, they're they're, they're up and running now. And this thing is, you know, this thing is now. Uh, in the early days, they they'd never been to Wrexham, so the, so they had no idea that they they thought they knew uh, what it was all about, but. Um, Gosh, I think their first game was it away at Maidenhead or something. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. yeah. yeah so um, they've never been. So my job was to, as I say, be that bridge and conduit to the naysayers to understand. You know, I got a pretty good feeling about them very quickly, 
Rob in particular. Um, but no, I mean, if they call me or, or they, you know, text me or whatever, I'm more than happy. But I think now they've got a great crew. They've got uh, sufficient boots on the ground uh, to, to, to be able to understand. And to your point earlier, they've spent a lot of time there, um, you know, and, and I went over uh, to the Altrincham game. Uh, flew over to watch. Uh, it was four nil that day, if you recall, and and went to that game. And it was, it's it's just wonderful to go back to the race course and 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 uh, to 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 go watch the game. The race course felt the same, um, you know. And and it to your point of Garin putting his arm around everybody. I, I walk up the stairs to the director's lounge up there and uh, say, "My name's Peter Moore. This is my wife Debbie." And and the guy there at the top of the stairs, Dave, says. I know who you are. You copied off me in third form in Grove Park. And I thought, yeah, I'm back in Wrexham. And, and he said, uh, you know, we went to school together at Grove Park. And and, um, God, and the first time I walked right into John Lloyd, who's Cliff Lloyd's son, and I played with Phil Lloyd. I mean, just great. Spencer was wonderful. You know, it's, a, it's, it's still a small town. And, um, you know, you've got that small town feel, but big club uh aspirations and that's what it should be peter it was a shame you weren't able to sit in that cinema seat but you know um I, i'm not sure i'd be here now if i had because it's just one of those where nothing was ready to fall down at any given time oh peter thank you so much for for, for your time i've absolutely loved it um please come on again we'd love to have you on again you're such such a great talker um uh, and from from me and everyone thank you thank you so much my absolute pleasure, yeah. And let's, uh, fingers crossed for next year. I think we'll be fine, but, uh, you know, let's settle in before we start talking Premier League here. <laughs> yeah. Stage advice. Thank you very much, Peter. You've been very generous with your time. All right. Take care, you guys. Thanks, Peter. Thank you so much. Bye. Town. Bye. Up the town. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs>
Oh, I will take it. Be read out. Yes, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm only gonna read a couple of them. I might save a couple back just because we've had such a bumper, amazing chat with Peter. I'll tell you so... what, why don't we do a fan mailbag special close season episode? Uh, so get get emailing in at fidzine at gmail.com. Yeah, we're making it as difficult as possible for you to contact us. <laughs> anyway, and, Lee, uh, sorry. Yeah, and uh, yeah, if you could all send in your favourite Andy Gilpin smoking sightings as well, we'd all really appreciate <laughs> that. We don't need any smoking sightings. <laughs> there are um, Denny, aren't there? There's the thumbnail. There's the thumbnail for the pod. His, his, his eyes narrowed and beaming. Um, so very, very quickly, we had some on the back of promotion. So a chap called Paul Williams emailed into Banks for the podcast. Says it's something he looks forward to on a Monday morning. And we've all waited a long time for a promotion. He was there when we were promoted in 77-78, when we took Rotherham apart 7-1. Can't say that I'm jealous at all, uh, although it was amazing when we got promoted out of this league. Um, he says he started supporting Wrexham from seven years old, now 61, as passionate about Wrexham as he was back then. He watched the sun, uh, watched the sun. <laughs> he watched the Boreham Wood game with his son, and at the end of the match, he was in tears, as was Mr. Rob McElhenney. So thank you very much, Paul, for getting in touch. And he says thank you for the work that we do at the end. Um, we've also had a chap called Gary Fenley in touch. He said, just listen to the Champions podcast. And thought he'd contact us to say how much he's enjoyed listening over the last season or two. Again, another one who's lucky enough to have followed us since the 70s when he was a kid living in Cheltenham. and used to be ridiculed no end by his schoolmates because of this. Uh, he says going up the season has been better than any success from the past um, and he's really enjoyed following it via the podcast and thanks us for the hard work. You are very welcome, Gary. Wow. Uh, do, is plug. it hard work? Yes. Uh, hard work set, for Reese. <laughs> I mean, it's all of us. It's hard work working with all of you, but we all, yeah, that too. Uh, we all appreciate your support uh, as ever. And there was one more, wasn't there, Liam, from a while back, which which I think was um, to the point, wasn't it? Mullin print. Uh, when is it coming? Uh, Tim, can you update anyone who perhaps has, has pre or In fact, I think there were fewer words used than that. Um, any, yeah, any there, 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 there's no, there's no intro. There's no. Uh, yours sincerely. It was just a. Where's the print right way? Feel the anger in the pin. Right, right. I, I know more about this because I, I had, uh, I had dinner with, uh, well, lunch with Blake, who's sending them all out. So basically, he's got all the postage sorted. He's got all the uh, tubes that they're in. Um, and he's going to start posting them this week. But just be aware that there's certain sort of levels on the Shopify because some people just want a, a print. Some people want to pre-order the new uh, fanzine, which obviously hasn't been printed yet. And some people want bundles and prints. So, you know, th they'll come in different orders. But if you just want the print, um, it should be coming soon. Patience, young Padawan. It'll be worth it. It's very good. Very nice. There's no sweatshop involvement here. It's all very DIY, so please be patient. It's well worth it. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening once again. You can follow us on Twitter. You can email us, as discussed. You can follow us on YouTube if you really want to. I would advise you don't, because look at us. But um, you're more than welcome to. Um, and we are looking forward to some of the guests that we've got lined up over the summer, so please stay tuned for that. But until that point, thanks, everyone, for listening, and goodbye. Please watch yeah. us on YouTube. Reese looks cool in a cap. Cheers. Take care. I'm off for a smoke. See you. <laughs> of the town. Of the town. <laughs>